Mother Nature has savaged us with COVID. But with the help of basic natural phenomena, we will build back and bounce back greener. And this government will lead that green industrial revolution. We want to build back greener as we recover from COVID-19. That was the message this week at the Prime Minister's Conservative Party conference speech. But in all the talk of wind turbines and technology, the place of care in our economic recovery didn't really get a look in. For a climate economy, for a green economy, for a sustainable economy, we need to undertake work that is not, in a sense, greenhouse gas emitting. And that's going to be mainly service work. And care work is service work. So... Why is care so often overlooked when we think about the economy? And how would our lives change if we put care at the centre of our economic decisions? The new care agenda will hopefully, you know, end the domination of competition, turbo consumerism, rampant individualism, and, and help us create a much more kind of balanced economy. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, what would a caring economy look like? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. Great. So this week, I'm super excited to be joined down the line by three fantastic guests. First of all, we have Joe Littler, Professor of Social Analysis and Cultural Politics at City University of London, and one of the authors of The Care Manifesto, The Politics of Interdependence. Hi, Joe. Hi, Aisha. Great to have you uh, returning back to the pod. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, and we're also joined by Marion Sharples, project manager and researcher at the Women's Budget Group. Hi, Marion. Hello. Thanks for being with us. And finally, we're joined by Neff's own senior economist, Sarah Arnold. Hi, Sarah. Hi, everyone. Okay, cool. So let's kick off, as always, by setting the scene. Joe, I'm going to come to you first. You've written that in the UK, we have a lack of care from cradle to grave. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, while care has historically been positioned as women's work, as the unpaid labour of social reproduction, which allows capitalism to function, but is completely undervalued. So we have a situation where women undertake two thirds of paid and three quarters of unpaid work globally, but this work is not really given enough prominence. It's definitely not remunerated effectively enough. And then on top of that, since the advent of neoliberalism, over roughly four decades now, we've had a system where public care provision has become increasingly dismantled, outsourced corporate commodity chains and draining the public sector. So doing what Bev Skeggs calls uh, the state has been treated like an ATM machine. Um, so we have that. And then on top of that, we have austerity as well. So we have a kind of a fundamental devaluing of care and cutting back of care instead of treating it as it should be is the most important thing that sustains our life. So, I mean, at some point in our lives, as you say, we've all either needed care or we will need it. Why do you think, Joe, that our dependence on care has been so ignored? Well, it's partly because it's associated with the feminine and it's partly because um, care itself brings to the foreground the issues of our interdependency, the way in which we're all interwoven into interpersonal relationships, into communities, into the broader social fabric of the state and the world. And those interdependencies are fundamentally opposed to the kind of mantras of neoliberalism, which tell us that we are, above all, individual, competitive, thrusting subjects that need to learn to be self-reliant. And it's no accident that in this period, we have 
have the kind of fetishization of self-care above all. You know, we have the kind of veneration of self-care as something that you can buy off the peg. Um, and you should spend a lot of time and resources on. But we don't really have a vocabulary that's comparable for collective care. You know, that doesn't really trip off the tongue in the same way. So it's to do with those dual things, really. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to come back to the question of whether COVID has shifted anything around this, particularly, obviously, things like mutual aid. But for now, just a question for you, Marion, on that. What do you think that it means for us as a society that such a basic need has been systematically devalued for so long? I think it just shows how skewed our priorities are. You know, I think caring for one another it's a fundamental part of what it is to be human, you know, and I think that has come in. I know we want to go into the kind of the impact of COVID on this later on, but I think this really has shone a light on that this year. You know, people have really realised that when it comes down to it, what really matters is people around us, people that mean a lot to us, making sure that people are okay in this time of crisis. And I think that that has led people to kind of step back and reflect on what values underpin our entire system like what is more important and I think that's come out really strongly in in large numbers there's support for re-centering the economy around well-being around care around equality things like this because I think this year has really kind of showed us what matters and it's also kind of shone a light on on how care has been neglected and it's forced people to take a step back and think what matters what is really fundamental to life and what do we really value you know Mm. Um, so let's drill down a little bit into talking about our care services. So we've talked quite a bit about financialization over the past few weeks on the podcast. Sarah, could you explain for us what it means that the social care sector is financialized? Sure. So part of the issue with social care as a sector is that over time, I guess since the 1970s, when the majority of care was provided by the state, provision has shifted towards the independent sector, which is dominated by for-profit providers. And that's the case of what happens now. The majority of care homes and the care sector is run by private companies. And in many cases, these private providers are small local entrepreneurs. But as property prices had rocketed and as providers realised that actually this was a potential um, area where profits could actually be realised, There was a huge amount of investment in bigger providers funded by private equity, seeing the care sector essentially as a way of getting rich quick. But unfortunately, since 2010, or since kind of austerity and rising demand and lack of funding in general, these providers have been struggling. So we have a state now where many providers are very large, are providing quite large corporate kickbacks, but they're unable to provide care quality that's required. Um, and are increasingly fragile as government support to the sector is (laughs) diminishing. And so we essentially have a situation where some providers are too big to fail and they'll need to be backed by the government if they do fall. And the system is becoming increasingly dysfunctional, essentially. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Marion, in your opinion, how has the last decade of government cuts to public services that we've kind of discussed so far and this financialization that Sarah just laid out, how's that actually impacted on the care sector and the people who work in it? I think, yeah, just to add on what um, Sarah was saying there, I think we hear about this idea of, you know, these large corporate care providers being too big to fail and, and kind of being on the brink of viability or not. But actually, I think what's really interesting is that at the same time, companies can say that they are on the brink of declaring a loss, that kind of thing, but they're also paying out huge amounts in dividends. And I have an example of that here, HC1, which is the biggest um, care home group 
is kind of made up of this really complex web of over 50 companies, six of which are registered in the Cayman Islands or Jersey. And HC1 is declared a loss every year, except one since its creation in 2011. But in 2017 to 2019, it paid dividends of £48.5 million. This is just an example of the point I was making earlier about priorities and how things are so completely skewed. You know, if you have these huge amounts being paid in dividends and being brought in in terms of rents and things like that, but at the same time, you have 1.4 million people in England who have unmet care needs. And I think in terms of the impact of austerity, we can see that really strongly. And I think it's important to make the point that Obviously, the care systems across the four nations of the UK are incredibly different and there's different provision, there's different ways of doing it in each of the four nations. And, and particularly in Scotland, for example, we can look to, to how things are being done differently. There is um, you know, personal care available free of charge to the over 65s um, in Scotland, which isn't the case elsewhere in the UK. But at the same time, we see some commonalities and we do see that while the supply of state funded care has been decreasing in recent years across the four nations, the demand is increasing. And even in Scotland, for example, demand for health and social care services is going to increase or is expected to increase um, by around 25% by 2030. Okay, that makes sense. So we've got this underfunded sector, can't meet people's needs. And obviously, we also know it's employing workers with poor pay and conditions like so many other sectors. But as Joe said, we also often hear that care work is devalued primarily as women's work, at least, you know, it's seen in that way, and that might be part of the problem. So what does all this mean for women? Marion, it'd be great to come to you in the first instance and then open it up. And I'm also interested in women with intersecting identities. So for example, women of colour or disabled women, etc. How is that compounded? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge question. There are multiple impacts. I think we can look at it in, in kind of two ways. I think immediately we can look at um, the care workers themselves, so most of whom are women, many of whom are migrants or who are um, people of colour. We can look particularly, for example, during this year, looking back at COVID and seeing how these people have disproportionately borne the brunt of the pandemic. It's the kind of cliche expression, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're very much in different boats. And I think that it's crucial to look at who exactly is doing this frontline work, who has been facing the brunt. Um, of it. And it is in many cases, women, particularly women of colour, particularly migrant women. Um, and then I think more broadly, which goes back to the point that Joe was making about the devaluing of care work, because it's, it's associated with women, I think that has kind of huge, 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 huge broader implications in terms of um, women's economic equality more broadly. So because women do a disproportionate amount of unpaid care, that means they have less time to do paid work. They're more likely to work part time, be in precarious employment. They're less able to travel to work, which restricts their job choices. Then you have these stereotypes and social norms about the choices that women are going to make during their lives. Um, employers make assumptions that leads to discrimination in the workplace, all around, all of which stem from um, the poor valuing of care in general, both paid and unpaid, the gendered associations with that. And then the way that this kind of pans out to broad impacts across the labour market. Hmm. Joe, what do you think are kind of, yeah, I guess same question, what are some of the maybe more social or cultural implications for women in all of this? Well, I absolutely agree with what Marion's been saying. And if we think about care as occupying multiple zones, we might, for example, look at childcare and how the inequalities there have been ramified during the pandemic. So you already have a case of a system where women do the bulk of childcare anyway. You have a kind of privatised system of childcare where childcare in the UK is exorbitant. 
Um, and during the pandemic, has work by the Women's Budget Group is shown and lobbied against. You weren't allowed to be furloughed on a part-time basis. You could only be furloughed on a full-time basis. So that disproportionately impacted on women, meaning that they've been doing the brunt of childcare during COVID, um, which means that you know women's possibilities in a paid working sphere go backwards and you have these kind of sedimented inequalities which impact on on men as much as they do women and children as well so you have the kind of entrenchment of particular solidified ideas about what it means to be a man and I think the reassociation of care as something that women do and the devaluing of it also kind of feeds into some of the problems that we have now with masculinity, some of the kind of emotionally illiterate forms of masculinity that you see personified in Donald Trump, for example, and the kind of the rise of misogyny is all part of that picture. Mm, that's really interesting. So in your book, Joe, you talked about how our, our lack of care is responsible for the UK having the highest COVID death toll in Europe. So you touched on it then, but could you expand a little bit more on, on what you meant by that? Yeah, so we we talk about the problems with the fragmented social infrastructures of care and the problems that I alluded to earlier around how since the advent of neoliberalism, our very kind of infrastructures to care for each other have been broken up. So, for example, we might think about how we've lost 17,000 hospital beds. We've got a shortfall of 35,000 nurses and 10,000 doctors due to the combined effects of fragmentation, privatisation and austerity. And all the problems with care homes that Sarah was talking about as well a very much part of the picture. So we can think about how, you know, at the early stages of COVID, it ripped through care homes. And that's partly because of the fact that they are massively undervalued and are, are used as a site for private businesses to cream profits off. It's because of the bad working conditions for people that work in care homes. It means often they're on zero hours contracts. They have to work in multiple care homes. So that kind of aids the spread of the virus. And we saw how you know people were just locked inside care homes pretty much and left to die. So we talk in, in the book, in the Care Manifesto, about the need for a politics of interdependence um, rather than self-care and how we need to kind of build robust structures of care on all levels. Okay. So, I mean, just building on that, I'd obviously be remiss if we didn't talk about the clap for carers. Um, it seems, you know, relevant in all of this. So, Joe, what did the clap for carers and also kind of the rapid spread of, of mutual aid groups say about all this, say about how the public was feeling and um, what the public attitude was or is towards care in the, in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, well, as Marion said, it, it shines a light, doesn't it, on what's really important on the social infrastructures and the, the structures that we need to reproduce our lives. So that it's a moment where there is a kind of public revaluation of what key worker job uh, should mean. And it involves getting food to us as well as keeping us alive on ventilators. But yeah, at the same time, we have this very public demonstration of care and increase in mutual aid groups, which is gratifying and fantastic and wonderful and, and heartening. And then we have the callous uh, care washing government response, whereby uh, Matt Hancock just wants to give a badge to carers rather than give them a pay rise and provide them with enough protective equipment to make sure they don't die as well. 
Mm, not quite enough. Marion, just to come to you on that with a couple of questions. One of them is around, I know the Women's Budget Group have recently done some polling about public support for prioritising care in the UK economy. It would be great to hear about that. And then the other factor, obviously, in all of this is the upcoming end to the Brexit transition period. And, and I just was wondering if you had any thoughts on how that might affect the care sector in particular and those who work in it. Yeah, so um, as you say, last week we launched our report called Creating a Caring Economy, which was the final report of the Commission on a Gender Equal Economy, um, which has basically been a kind of a convening of experts from different sectors working together over the last 18 months to produce a blueprint for what an economy based on care in its broadest sense might look like. And so as we released that report, we, as you say, Aisha, we did some polling to see where the public were on some of these issues. And it was really interesting to see the outcomes there. And you know, for example, over half of people polled across the UK um, believe that investment in social care, health and education is more important to the future of the economy than investment in, in transport and technology. Really interesting to see that strong support for social infrastructure. And uh, 82% of respondents said that social care should be available to everybody based on their care needs, not their wealth. And also kind of looking at unpaid care, uh, really interesting to look at men's support for this. So a majority of men, three in four men aged 18 to 54, um, said that they supported um, the idea that government should encourage and financially support men to take on more care, which is really heartening. And actually in, in some of the younger age groups there, there was more support for that among men than women. So there's a kind of real strong desire, I think, among the public for change. You know, is that uh, reorienting investment priorities? Is that supporting men to take on more unpaid care as well? And thinking about how social care should be provided and, and, and who qualifies for that and how can that be delivered in a more equitable way? Um, so it's been really interesting to see that public support. And I think that goes back to the point earlier that we were talking about, about how COVID has really shone a light on that. You know, it'd be interesting to see the support for these kinds of things before COVID. And we, we've seen them, you know, I don't want to say post-COVID, but, you know, uh, mid-COVID, I suppose, and how that it really is about reorienting people's priorities. And I think that's really something to be to be optimistic about. Um, and then your second question was about Brexit and the impact of that on the care sector. And obviously, we know that recruitment and retention of care workers is a really huge problem. Almost one in two care workers in England leave within a year of starting. And there's thousands and thousands of vacancies within the sector. And there's going to be huge implications of Brexit on this. And we have to make sure that we are acting now um, to make sure there isn't a further increase in demand and, you know, an increase in unmet need. Um, and so, you know, what's the solution to this? Unsurprisingly, it's invest in the care sector. We need to have a much larger proportion of the working population working in care. Um, if we compare this to Denmark, for example, Denmark has about 11% of its working population um, employed in the care sector. And we just have about 5% in the UK. Care workers need to be paid a lot better. Again, looking at Denmark, for example, they're paid much closer to primary school teachers and nurses, about kind of 75% of what nurses and teachers earn. Whereas um, here, it's just about half of the equivalent wages for teachers and nurses. This recruitment and retention problem, a kind of key part of, of solving that, obviously, is about much better training, much better pay, much better working conditions. The reason that we have so many vacancies in social care is because care workers are badly treated. And, and at the same time, it's about this undervaluing, isn't it? You know, people don't see it as a good job in a skilled profession with a career structure. And it needs to become exactly that if we want to have a more caring society and indeed a caring economy. 
Mm, okay, so let's dive more into um, alternatives then. I know that you've all been doing work around this area, looking at how we might start to kind of change the rules of our economy to recenter around care. So I'd love to hear about more of them. So let's start with you, Sarah. We're currently in a recession, obviously, with rising unemployment levels. How do you think that investing in the care system would help with this? Right, well, yeah, I, th- I think Marianne and Joe have set out a very good case for investing in the care sector because the care sector needs investing in. But there's also a very strong macroeconomic argument right now for public investment in the care sector. So as you said, Aisha, we're entering a recession. We're in a recession. Unemployment rates are skyrocketing. Um, We've got around nearly 3 million people are now claiming benefits. There's been increases in unemployment across the board, even under our, I guess, our most optimistic scenarios. We're expecting unemployment to peak around 1 in 10 this year, a 10% rate. That's the most optimistic scenario. So there's a a real need to create jobs for people, not just for the support for people who have actually lost their jobs and the need for that, but also because without more job creation and without investment in our economy, that we have a potential for kind of spiraling and the recession getting worse, becoming much deeper and wider than it would be otherwise. Um, So there's a real need for government fiscal stimulus or, or investment. And the care sector is a really good an important opportunity for investment for several reasons. Firstly, it's, there's going to be a source of sustainable demand both currently and over the next 10 years or so. We know right now there are huge levels of vacancies within the care sector. So there is that demand for jobs that can happen and people can enter right now. But we also know that as we have an aging population, over time, we're expecting more and more people to need care. So it's kind of a sustainable solution. Care is also something that was needed across the country. People in Leicester need care as much as people in London. And so this is something that will help with the levelling up agenda. It doesn't just need to be investment in one area. It can be distributed throughout the country. And finally, yeah, there's there's less of a lead-in time than other potential investments. So there's been quite a lot of talk about the need to um, invest in green infrastructure, to invest in roads, to invest in the kind of infrastructure we need to get our country going. But they have quite long planning requirements in many cases, whereas care is something you can just put people into right now because there are those jobs needed. Um, So basically, investing in care is a a really important opportunity right now to stimulate the economy, as well as reorientate our economy towards an area where there will be rising demand. And it is something that we should be um, sorting out now rather than waiting um, for the situation to get worse. Okay. Okay. This all makes sense. I'm on the uh, alternative train with you. Let's come to you, Joe. our next stop. So you've written that care infrastructure should be part of the collective commons and that we need more community level responsibility for care. So could you explain what that could look like in practice? Yes. Well, I think we need to demand insourcing. We need to uh, really publicise the extent to which outsource provision and privatisation is frittering away public money. And Open Democracy have done some great work on this recently in terms of the government's COVID contracts being given to private contractors. And there's been a lot of good publicity around Serco as well and the massive waste of public money that's been. So I think we need to um, find ways of campaigning to demand insourcing, to bring back care into the public sector and to recognise that that's a way to deepen democracy and to deepen accountability, you know, to end kind of disaster capitalist frittering away of our public resources. 
So you can think about how that could be done, for example, in care homes. Uh, we can you know, build on cooperative models like the Burtzog system, where they offer cooperative care and they have a small team of people working on a regular basis with people for their well-being. You can think about how local government can be provided with the funding and the resources to, to bring in their systems in-house, which will save public money anyway. Um, and you can think about how that will work on different tiers and levels, I think, you know, all if we expand our notion of care, as I think we should, to think about how it might work in terms of education. You know, we've seen what's happened with universities opening up recently when, you know, students should not have been allowed back on campus, but they were allowed back because the universities wanted their money. So I think we need to think about how public provision can take many different forms, um, but we need to think about decommodifying care, collectivising it on a series of different levels from local government to cooperatives to state. Okay, right. So we're coming to you, Marion, the final stop. Uh, we're pulling into the alternative station. I've stretched this train metaphor so far. Um, <laughs> so what are, you, what are you thinking about alternatives? I know you've, you've mentioned things about full-time child and elderly care systems potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I keep hearing the phrase care jobs are green jobs. And I was thinking you could mm-hmm. maybe talk about that too. Yes, totally. And I just wanted to add on um, another stat. I mean, sorry to be the stat machine. You bring on the women's budget group and all they do is talk stats at you. But um, I just wanted to bring... <laughs> we love it. <laughs> I just wanted to um, bring a stat to what Sarah was saying about investment in the care sector. So we've done some research and it shows that if you invest 1% of GDP in the care sector, it creates 2.7 times as many jobs in the economy overall then compared to uh, the same investment in the construction industry. And really interesting, that is 6.3 times as many jobs for women, but also 1.1 times as many jobs for men. So it even creates uh, more jobs for men uh, in the, if you invest in the care sector than in the construction sector and, and way more for women as well. So I think that's a really, you know, it's a powerful stat. It, it makes a case for investment in care from a kind of really hard-nosed perspective, I guess. And the point on sustainability as well, for sure. Um, definitely, again, if we compare care to construction, investing in care is three times less polluting per job created overall um, than the equivalent investment in the construction industry. So it really is a win-win, you know, if we think about uh, returns on investment, if we think about sustainability, and obviously if we think about meeting people's needs. I don't, I don't know what, uh, you know, what people are waiting for, really. Um, but I think more broadly, I guess, about your question about alternatives, I think, you know, this piece of work that we released last week about creating a caring economy, paid care services is a really important part of that. But I think it is about this larger piece of work about stepping back, thinking about what really matters, you're centering care, because it is really, you know, it's the glue that holds society together. It's crucial. It's a key part of the human experience. And that's never really been so clear um, than this year. And I think, you know, people sometimes say, is this really the right time to be doing this? I think, you know, we've discussed that about exactly why. And and Sarah gave a really, you know, kind of convincing appeal on that. You know, it does come down to the fact that we can make this comparison to the Second World War. You know, people say, oh, it's, it's the middle of a pandemic. Really the time to be stepping back and thinking about these big questions. And I think it absolutely is if you think about how the welfare state was born out of the Second World War. Um, you know, we were facing these huge, huge social economic impacts, including high levels of debt at that time. And, and, you know, we're in a similar scenario in many ways now. But that was seen as the right moment to do this, to invest in the future, to think about a different vision of society that we want to have. If we could do it then, 
we can absolutely do it now. And I think there's, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, there's really strong public support for this. People don't want to go back to business as usual. People do want to do things differently. So I think this is absolutely the moment for a change of direction. Mm, it's so funny how the people who benefit from things being the way they are never think it's the right time to talk about change. <laughs> uh, that seems to I seem to come up against that wall across the board. Um, all right. So final question then, broadening out from the formal care sector, let's talk about the economy as a whole a bit more. So we'll start with you uh, again, Marion. You've said that people need to have the time to care for others and time free from caring responsibilities. So could you expand a bit on what that means, what that would mean for the economy and, and what policies, I guess, would need to be in place to facilitate that? Completely. I think this it's really important to recognise that care can be a joy, but it can also be a burden and that we need to make sure that that is equally shared among different groups within society. So I think, you know, there are many ways which we can do that. Obviously, a kind of really, really important way of doing that is reimagining the worlds of paid and unpaid work and facilitating things like flexible working, just kind of taking into account that people have a whole load of stuff going on outside their paid jobs and really kind of building the working world around that, the paid working world, I should say. Um, a lot of work is unpaid as well. And, and really just kind of recognising that, you know, that might be through flexible work policies, that might be through equal parental leave policies, that might be a reduced working week, uh, free universal childcare, all of these different areas that we're talking about, that together can mean that people are able to live different parts of their lives in a more balanced way and indeed have time to care, but also have time free from care. So it's about balance. It's about well-being. It's about equally sharing the joys and burdens of care. And it's about, I think fundamentally, it's about recognising that humans are multifaceted. We've all got lots of different stuff going on. And what we really want is for the economy to reflect that. Mm, sounds good to me. All right. So we're, we're coming uh, back to you, Sarah. I wanted to just check in on whether you had any thoughts about the role of kind of environmental protections as part of a caring economy. Could you talk a little bit about what restoring and protecting our environment has to do with care and vice versa? Sure. Well, I think the first thing to say is that there is a desire right now to build back better and that any government investment or any activity we take in response to COVID should also help us switch and reorientate ourselves towards the economy that we want to have. And because of that, I think lots of people are talking about the need to invest in green infrastructure, the need to invest in the kinds of things that will help transform our economy to be greener. But it's important, I think, to recognise, as I think it was Marion that just said, that the social care sector itself is already relatively low carbon. And that investing in jobs in that area will create less pollution, will create less carbon emissions. And the reason for that is partly because it's relational and it happens locally. So people care for people in their local area. Um, and it's just generally less intensive. So reorientating towards this kind of more relational way of working and more relational activities will in itself be greener and will allow us to kind of do that as well. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't need to invest in these other things. We absolutely need to transform the economy and we need to invest in wind farms. We shouldn't forget the other things, the human things that we need to get the economy that we need. Mm, okay. So Joe, I want to come to you for the final thought. You said something which I really loved, which is that we need to treat care as an organising principle for politics. So could you explain what you meant by that? And, and what do you think it would look like to place care at the centre of our economy as an organising principle? 
Well, I think it means that we have to consider care in different circles of life. So, oh, that sounds a bit Lion King, but you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah. so we have to think about how, in order to care, we need uh, the context that can enable us to do so. We need the time to do so. We need the social structures to do so. We need our environment to not be collapsing in order to do so. So to foreground care and put that as the organising principle is something that I don't think we've ever really done as a society. And I think to prioritise it, not just in terms of what we need in the short term through COVID, but what we need in the long term and to kind of drag it out from being a background principle and to bring it up to the light and to say we need to put care front and centre of our lives. We need to get an expanding sense of our interdependencies. We need to recognise them and we need to really value them rather than viewing them as a weakness. It seems to me to be a key kind of ethical principle to construct our politics from. You know, having said that, I think it's also really important that we don't fall prey to some of the forms of care washing and some of the lies about care that are being presented to us, um, whether it's by the government, you know, giving people badges rather than paying them enough money, or whether it's by corporations doing forms of care washing and telling us that they care too when they really don't. So I think we need to kind of foreground the principle of care and really scrutinise it on every level to think about how we need universal childcare, we need a four-day week, we need to roll back neoliberalism and demand forms of insourcing and creative forms of public ownership and to look after the environment on every level. Brilliant. So not too much then. (laughs) Just those things. Um, No, but seriously, thank you so much to all three of you for being with me and laying out where we need to go from here. It certainly feels very comprehensive and doable to me. That is all we've got time for, sadly, though, this week. Lovely listener. Um, Joe Littler, first of all, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Well, the Care Manifesto is out with Verso, so you can find that on the Verso website. I'm on Twitter at, at littler underscore Joe, and um, you can find more out at the City University website as well. Brilliant. Thank you. Marion Sharples, thanks so much to you as well. Same question. How can people find out more about what you do? Thanks so much for having me. I would direct people to our report, Creating a Caring Economy, a call to action, which is on the Women's Budget Group's uh, website. And you can also follow the discussion on Twitter, hashtag Caring Economy Now. Fab. If you love the hard-nosed stats, just like (laughs) I do, then check out the report. Great quote. Um, And Sarah Arnold, thanks so much to you as well. Again, same question. Where can people go to find out more? Yeah, uh, you can find more from me at the New Economics Foundation website. We're due to publish a report pretty soon on the value of investing in public sector jobs right now, which includes the caring economy as a real important part of that. Um, And you can also find me on Twitter at at Sarah Song. Lovely. Thank you so much to all of you. That's it for today's weekly economics podcast, but we'll be back next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. And as always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.